Hey guys, welcome into Film Tank. On today's bonus episode, myself and Nick Cheney, hello, who is here, uh, just the two of us will be discussing the brand new, not yet released film, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Nick and I got a chance to uh, get into a special viewing of this uh, last week, and we thought it would be cool to talk about it since it doesn't technically come out until June, and uh, we're recording this in March, so... Uh, don't have a lot of chances to see special screenings uh, around here, so um, this was kind of a cool opportunity for us. If you want to uh, email the show, filmtankshow at gmail.com is where you would do that. Uh, also, you can find all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, and also at iTunes and Stitcher uh, if you want to use either of those. And if you want to get hold of us on uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram has our account at filmtankshow. So the, uh, the usual other two guys who are here with us uh, aren't here today because they didn't see the film. And it would be kind of weird if we were just talking about it and they were just sitting there being like, so, okay. So um, this was kind of a cool uh, opportunity that we had to see this at a, a previous screening, which preview screenings usually happen a couple weeks before a movie comes out. There will be events where you can go and see it. And if you get invited to or you have to get win some sort of contest where this... It was bizarre because it was three months before the film actually came out. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, obviously, 20th Century Fox picked it up after it did so well at Sundance. So, because, you know, they gave us surveys at the end. So, mm -hmm. I'm sure they're trying to figure out how to market it before, right. before it comes out. Yeah, so that was very unique and interesting. And I, uh, I enjoyed the experience of going to see it. And um, we'll get into more about the film, too. But it was uh, definitely interesting for me because I had never have the opportunity to go to an actual theater and see a film months before it uh, comes out to the general public. So that was pretty awesome. Also, we're going to have this first part of the episode where we're not going to be revealing spoilers necessarily. I mean, we'll talk about characters and performances and things about the movie, but we won't give away things that people could think of that would ruin the plot or anything like that. And then we'll have a, a, a second part of the episode, which you'll, they'll be separated when you go to look it up, and you'll be able to listen to the second part. So anyways, uh, this film, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, uh, premiered just uh, in January at the Sundance Film Festival, and uh, did very well, won the uh, top prize there, if I'm correct. Yeah, the grand jury prize. Yeah, so a lot of people loved it to see her at uh, Sundance, as uh, directed by... Alfonso Gomez Rejan, I think is how you say Rejan. I'm not sure how he's kind of a somewhat of a new director, so um, he has not done a lot of things that you have seen. He's uh, directed some episodes of American Horror Story, oh. but um, he's really not done that much in terms of film. So, but anyways, this film, Me and Her Own the Dying Girl, if you do not know about it or you haven't read the book, which is out there, is about a teenage filmmaker who befriends a classmate with cancer and. It's, it's a really simple description, but I think it's kind of a simple idea in this movie. So uh, usually we start with you, Nick, and we only have the two of us today, but why don't we start with you and keep with tradition, see what you initial feelings about this film were. Yeah, this is, um, I gotta say, it, winning the Grand Jury Prize does not surprise me after seeing it, mm -hmm. because, and I don't want to say this in a negative way, but this definitely seems like a movie that 
has such a baseline of competence and just, you know, uh, I would say talent involved and whatnot that I would be hard-pressed to find somebody who just didn't like it, like, outright. So I think that's kind of where it factors into why it was such heavily praised and whatnot because it's just one of those just crowd-pleasing movies. Like, it just does a lot of things right. It's not a perfect film by any means, but mm-hmm. it's not going out of its way to alienate its audience, I think, is a way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So in that vein, I did have a lot of fun with it. I thought it was very good for the most part. Uh, the performances pretty much across the board I was genuinely a fan of, um, especially the uh, the adults in the film, mm-hmm. because I... Uh, I thought the, the kids were great because they have to be, otherwise there's no movie. But a lot of times in these kind of cliched uh, high school dramas, the adults are, I would say, like horrible stereotypes. And there's definitely some elements of that at play here, but I feel like it's a lot more playful this time around. And uh, like Nick Offerman's character who plays the, is he the stepfather? No, he's the I think father. he is his actual father. He's his father, right, okay. Uh, but like his character is obviously like a very funny and kind of exaggerated character. But there's also some moments of levity where he's just trying to be in his child's life, which I feel like it's relatable at it, you know, for any parent, obviously. Um, but in general, I thought that the best thing I can say about this movie is that on the surface, it looks like a lot of movies we've already seen before, you know, um, high school comedies, you know, cancer dramas, and mm-hmm. we've. I, had a mixture of those two before but what this film does get right besides the fact that it just does have a genuinely endearing uh, protagonist is that there were so many moments when it could have basically took a left instead of a right and went into the familiar territory that we are used to and it kind of I would say was much more withholding and restrained than I thought it would be hmm. so um, yeah I mean there's some problems with it uh Sometimes, like, even though I just said that, but sometimes it does feel a little too overly familiar or whatever. But the general gist of it is, for me at least, that it actually was treating uh, both his subjects and, uh, like, cancer and growing up with the kind of a levity you don't see in a lot of these films these days because it treats the children like children instead of, like, children trying to become adults. And there was just some great moments where, like, this is like the anti uh, the fault in our stars because I watched that last <laughs> year and I was not a fan of it. <laughs> and one of the reasons was because that movie to me felt like it was disingenuous in a way that it felt like a movie about people dealing with illnesses written by a person who's never had an illness. Like mm-hmm. there's something so inauthentic about it that I just couldn't put my finger on. I haven't done research or anything like that into the book or um, whether the author knows somebody or dealt with it or whatever. But it seems like she he or she did because it just felt right on as far as there were so many moments that like even myself I haven't had cancer but I've dealt with hospitals and illnesses and what yeah and I there were moments where I saw myself in that character or that character because that's how people react like it's not just like a solemn you know conversation it's like you get angry one moment you're ecstatic the next because you just have no control of your emotions well and another thing you're talking about having familiarity with the subject matter and i feel like i'm 27 years old and i feel like when most people get to their mid-20s they've at least had some sort of they've either had a friend or a relative or somebody not necessarily have cancer but have some sort of health struggle um so but i could totally see being 17 years old and that's just never been an issue whether you don't have grandparents who 
they, they don't have health problems or whatever. And the character, the main character, uh, who is uh, Greg in this movie, and uh, he is played by Thomas Mann. I feel like the, the thing about that makes this movie interesting, too, is that it, it's a little bit of a cliche, but he kind of gets thrown into this world of uh, hanging out with Rachel, the dying girl, who is played by Olivia Cook. Uh, he is, it, it's not really his decision, but I feel like that's the interesting dynamic in this film that his mother pretty much forces him to go hang out with her. And at first, you know, it kind of is cliched awkwardness, but uh, as the movie goes on, we get to know more about their relationship and uh, about his relationship with Earl too, who's the other uh, main character in this movie. Although he's not really that much of a main character, which was kind of odd to me, but yeah, he, um, he kind of almost stands in for what usually the, the parental roles play in this these kind of movies mm-hmm. instead of the big scene with uh, Greg going to his parents and like them giving him sound advice it's actually just his best friend who basically at one point tells him he needs to grow up and he needs to stop thinking all only about himself and whatnot so I thought that was actually kind of refreshing that it just came from his friend and not from uh, his parents because in real life as much as parents obviously can be helpful and whatever usually you you bear you bear your soul more to your friend than you do mm-hmm. to your parents especially when you're a teenager exactly so that's why i thought that was actually one of the more authentic beats of the movie um what you were saying about how which i completely agree with about how sometimes the movie does feel a little like overly cliched and whatnot like when he's thrown into it i do think that what saves this movie and even in those moments is that it still has a like an air of playfulness because when we when he is thrown into that there are some hilarious title cards that say like day one of doomed friendship you yeah know? so it's kind of like it's it's both it's like it goes down that route that we've seen before but it's also tongue-in-cheek about it so that way it, it it knows that what it's doing is not revolutionary but it is pretty emotional by the end yeah and um that's and i can't really haven't given my first thoughts on this movie yet yeah. um but i was I was also a fan of it. Um, I, I guess kind of not not the problem with it, but this is one of those films where I hear so many great things about it, and then you go in and expecting it to be this amazing experience. And not that it wasn't, because it was still a really good movie, but at the same time, it wasn't something I would call like a classic or anything like that, especially after just one viewing. I do think that this could be a film that could benefit from seeing multiple times, because there are interesting dynamics between the characters and the parents and the teachers and the teachers in this movie are also interesting because i feel like they're not stereotypes of what you would see in normal teachers which was awesome and a lot of um, the smaller characters are stay further and further away from stereotypes which is usually the opposite which i really enjoyed with this movie yeah no you can definitely tell why he like you know finds these outlets and like um his one teacher played by What's his name? The um, the guy from uh, uh, J- Jay Bernthal. He's the guy who was from The Walking Dead originally. He played the character. Is that who we're, ta- we're talking about? The same person, the guy with the soup. Is yeah, that? yeah, that's yeah. Who yeah he was he was also in The Wolf of Wall Street yes, and in Fury. Yeah. Okay. So I am thinking of the right guy. Yeah. Um, but no, it's like characters like that that we you know they have their quirks and yet they also feel like the most down to earth people in the entire film. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense when you know you have that cliche of like the younger kid hanging out with the older teacher, um, you know, outside of classes. It's not as creepy as that sounds. But, <laughs> but um, like, that's where they eat lunch, like, in his office and such like that. And it actually kind of makes sense once you actually meet him because he is one of, he would totally be that guy um, in Greg's, like, let's say, that time of his life. But he would be appealing as far as, like, he thinks, like, he's got it all together and whatnot. And 
that he can learn so much from him. And in some ways he does because he gives a great monologue toward the end of the film. Mm-hmm. But, but there's something about him that, like, no matter how far-fetched kind of, like, his, like, persona might seem, it was actually kind of great that, like, yeah, like you said, the, the more tertiary the characters became, the more almost grounded they became somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of wanted to not switch gears necessarily, but talk a little more uh, about the filmmaker aspect of this movie between Earl and the main character, Greg. Um, he, They're aspiring filmmakers, but they're not really, though. I think that's the great part is that early on in this film, you, you find out why they are into uh, older movies. They're into classic sort of indie films this is for the, the most part. This was basically... The- their favorite films are the Criterion Collection. Right. Like, almost every single film reference was a foreign or uh, uh, pre-1970s uh, or so. Yeah, there were a couple that were more a little more mainstream, like Eyes Wide Shut. You but... mean Eyes Wide Bud. Yeah. yeah. You will understand that joke if you go see the movie. Yeah, it, but they were they sort of did short remakes of movies, but they changed something about the film. And it... It was uh, interesting because they show these clips throughout the movie of them. And it it totally works. It's not like they're just stuffing these in there. It has a purpose in the movie. And that's done really well, I thought. But I I was very interested to see what their take on these remakes is. Their friendship was basically making these films together, which... It's pretty awesome in itself. I agree. Like, if you are a cinephile, and <laughs> even if this, I would say the premise does not sound interesting, at least go see it for this aspect alone. Because a, it never they don't just drop it after like the first twenty minutes or something. It is something that is prevalent throughout the entire film, and you never know when they're going to go back to it. Um, but b, part of the fun for me watching this was to see which film would show up next. I mean, there's literally the one montage where they go through like twenty different ones, mm-hmm. and I know they're only showing us one scene from each, but that still must have took quite a bit as far as like to get everything ready, just, yeah, just to shoot one scene for each uh, whatever. And I love even how far they go for a joke because when they show the, um, if you're a film take listener and you <laughs> listen to our second episode of the conversation, mm-hmm. they show a remake that they did of that where they remake the very famous kind of opening scene, which is a very large overhead shot and uh, the Gene Hackman character walking around a courtyard and the idea that they somehow found a courtyard that looks exactly, exactly like it and that they would get that camera angle just right like it's just hilarious like it's unrealistic it's kind of like a Wes Anderson fantasy where, mm-hmm. like these things don't happen in real life but they're gonna implant them in real life anyway just for the sake of a joke yeah and I really enjoyed that part of the film I felt like that was a strength of it it wasn't the main plot line but it did interweave with the main plot of the film and it interwove with it enough to where it didn't make it feel awkward or anything and like that. Not only that, but it also does end up becoming the kind of ultimate payoff in the third act, which I won't spoil here, but it does end up being, I would say, the emotional climax of the movie, or at least it becomes related to it. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, and this could just be me, but I feel like we haven't talked about the girl yet. I, I was going to mention that next, too, that we've spent this you know, first 15 minutes yeah. of this episode talking about everything but the main part of this film. So, right. Well, Greg's the main part. But his relationship with Rachel is right. the main Correct. story in the film. Correct. And I'm curious, because this was the only thing that kind of, I want to say, bugged me about the movie, because <laughs> eventually I came around on why it has to be and whatnot. But it is the only thing that kind of leaves a, I would say, you know, just, you know, like a, it's, it's weird because 
Um, Nathan Raven of the AV Club once uh, coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which describes all those ridiculous indie movies like Garden State with kind of the first perpetrator of it, where you have some messed up male and a basically psychotic woman comes into their life like you would not accept that behavior in real life but they're so whimsical and they're so you know whatever that they fall in love whatever and basically fix the man and like that's their sole purpose in the script Mm -hmm. i wouldn't say that me and earl and the dying girl in any way becomes that like because rachel never feels like a caricature however there is something a little sick about the idea that like her you know her illness, shall we say, and it's only really there to make Greg a better person because, unfortunately, by the end of the film, we don't know too much about her other than her illness. Right. We know a little bit about her mom, because uh, who's played wonderfully, I think, by Molly Shannon. Yeah. Like, when I first saw her, I thought that was going to be one of the worst parts of the movie, but actually, despite the fact that she's playing a over-the-top character. It was more dialed back than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Like, if you consider, of course, what's happening in her life, it's almost understandable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we don't get to know Rachel in the same way we even get to know like Earl, even. Because like, he narrates stuff about Earl and like about his upbringing. Like, even if it's you know barely there, it's still there. So it's just weird that like this movie is not concerned with Rachel whatsoever. It's only concerned with Greg's relationship with Rachel and there's something weird about the idea that it's kind of got this myopia look is because once Rachel is no longer important to Greg's journey she disappears from the film and I'm not going to say of course why she disappears or anything like that uh, but she just completely drops off the face of the earth mm-hmm. because uh, Greg is no longer interacting with her at that point so I just thought there was some weird uh, script choices and I don't know if it goes back to the book or not but that was the only thing that like I felt like we didn't need to have her be more defined, but it would have been great if they could have been telling two parallel stories, one of Greg and one of Rachel, because there definitely, I think, was room for it. I mean, it was a short film, and I feel like just even ten more minutes of getting to know Rachel, like, how can we never got a single scene of, like, how Rachel was dealing with this without Greg there? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Well, and uh, I, I think you kind of hit on that already, where the story is solely about Greg, and the kind of mood of the film changes as his mood changes, which is there's there's a couple different ways you can take that is it's a great filmmaking choice where the film tone and the actual, what the film is, whether it goes from a comedy to a drama to a whatever. um, It, it isn't, it isn't for me because I feel like I want a film to commit to what it's trying to be. And this film, which the first 30 minutes of it, I absolutely ate up. I thought were great. It definitely tried to be very meta, I would say, in the in the early part of the film. And there were parts of the um, film that came alive that were very interesting. That It's almost like imagining things that aren't actually there, but they're really there. And I just love that kind of stuff. There, so. was, a, there was a great kind of blending of uh, fiction and reality. Yeah. In the beginning, that the film definitely kind of became less interested in as it went on which again is as i had mentioned that the film is trying to be self-aware and changing its tone as the as greg's life changes at the same time though i love that tone of the beginning of the film and maybe that's trying to have some sort of message but at the same time maybe that's just the way that the book is written and that's the way that the filmmaker took it but um yeah, I, I, I feel like the beginning of the film is much more of a comedy and interesting 
film that where as it goes on it's not as funny it's a lot more of real between these characters and it's interesting yeah and i think that's actually one of my favorite parts of the film for me oh, okay is the <laughs> idea that greg's behavior is funny at first but then it just becomes pathetic because then we start to realize how like a human being can't function like you can't be that self-loathing you cannot be that you know immature or whatever and of course the film addresses that because Mm -hmm. it is a coming of age story or whatever but i feel like the tones are actually perfectly matched for like how somebody like greg why would you want to hang out with him you know at the first 10 minutes because he's he's hilarious whatever but after a while you're just like jesus christ shut the fuck up (laughs) Um, yeah and of course it does take somebody like rachel and her predicament for him to snap out of some of those behaviors and whatnot yeah, I, I was I was gonna say there's some interesting use of like claymation in here, mm-hmm. which does tie into the theme. Well, not the theme, but the uh, the practice of him making movies because he uses it in some of his movies too. Um, it was just weird that the claymation at first started off interesting because it was like pretty. Like I think it literally starts with claymation, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the first thing you see, and it's like a whole scene and everything, and then. After that, they only bring that back up to basically run one punchline into the ground, which became not very funny after, like, the third time that they, yeah. they showed it. So it was kind of weird that they kind of, like, I don't know if they had, like, a budget or something, but, like, it's just weird that it's so prevalent in that first half hour. Like, because I like the tone of it's just fine. Like, I can understand why it goes from a comedy to a drama. But mm-hmm. It's just weird that, like, all that stuff is really relegated to the first, yeah, like, the first half hour because then you're, you are kind of setting up expectations for a film that's not going to happen. Well, and Greg's character tries to be that person who is liked by everybody, but doesn't really have many what close is, relationships. What is liked by nobody. Yeah, and he kind of goes through the stereotypes of a high school, and I, I, I would totally not be have anything against what he was saying because there are definitely cliques when it comes to high school and any kind of school, in, in fact. But high school is probably the most prevalent with those clicks and stereotypes and things but also um he actually has a real relationship with somebody when it is earl and then later in the movie with rachel and um i guess that's where the title comes in me and earl the dying girl but i feel like that was part of the film for me that not that the title means everything but that it wasn't like they had like a close-knit relationship it was really Greg and Rachel and not so much Earl as he's kind of a supporting side character that shows up every now and then. Right. I, for me, I think the title goes back to it's, it's Earl and it's Rachel that are the two people that cause him to grow the most. It's mm-hmm. not his parents. And yes, Earl is nowhere near as prevalent as Rachel is in the film. But you have to admit that almost like pretty much the one scene, especially with Earl, is one of the most, uh, I would say, uh, catalytic scene as far as him changing his ways and whatnot. Because Earl, that's the funny thing is that he talks earlier in the film about how Earl, you know, his upbringing wasn't great and, you know, he's kind of in a poor part of the neighborhood. So you get the sense that Earl's already grown up. Yeah. He doesn't need to and whatever. So that's why he's able to at the very end, well, toward the end, say, you need to grow up. Uh, and that's why it, it almost comes authentic coming from him, despite the fact that they're the same age and whatnot, because he. You know, he's already went through this shit probably when he was like seven years old <laughs> instead of 17. So. Well, and that goes back to what we were talking about before about Greg not having any sort of bad things happen in his life. His parents definitely sort of enable his behavior. Yes. And um, he's never had to really try to go through changing, although obviously he has changed, whether it be 
physically changing or changing his character life or whatever, but he hasn't had to have any sort of growth period. Right. And this is the first time with Rachel that he's actually had to deal with like the consequences of actions, loss, you know, just all the staples of like what makes an adult. Basically there's even a great scene uh, where he sort of tells Rachel how to get out of situations, whether it be playing, playing uh, dead, which is interesting when you're telling someone who has cancer that they should play dead to get out of a situation. Yeah, those early scenes are both kind of hilarious because mm-hmm. you just don't see that normally in a cancer dramedy or whatever, but yet also extremely uncomfortable because mm-hmm. you're you're laughing and then you're also thinking, like, this is probably, no matter how funny it might be, not what you should be saying to, to Rachel and whatnot. Right. I, um, one yeah. last thing that yeah. I, wanted is I do feel need feel the need to mention the fact that like we were saying this is a little bit cliched and you know your staples of your high school coming of age drummer are there but it does thankfully uh, I would say make the biggest uh, right turn when it could have like which is the whole him and Rachel are always platonic it is never even hinted at that they were going to get together or anything like that so I'm not spoiling anything but this is truly just he met one of the, his greatest friends and Rachel and whatnot. Now there are a few moments where he basically lampshades this trope because he, they, they have like little moments where like they're about to kiss or something, but it just cuts back to reality. And he said, "This is not that kind of movie." And that kind of stuff did start to piss me off a little bit <laughs> because of the fact that it's like I already am giving you credit for being subversive. Don't tell me you're being subversive because then it just takes away the effect of it. But um, thankfully, that only happened like two time yeah but um i do give it credit that it does not even like in the like by the end of the movie let's just say that much that there is no hint that they were ever going to be a couple that they ever should have been a couple Mm -hmm. and i give it a lot of credit for going down that road yeah and that's one of the parts of the movie that is definitely uh, i wouldn't say different for this genre because this is kind of an interesting genre that it's hard to find examples of other films that are necessarily like this where it's 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 a dramedy but it it doesn't take itself too seriously early on but then it becomes more kind of it's kind of like judo yeah and that's dealing with a very heavy subject but also dealing it with a very childlike wit Mm -hmm. and that's um the movie that i always come back to comparing this to is it's a lot like juno I think the difference in in Juno is they the two characters, the Michael Sarah character and the Ellen Page character, are in a relationship, right. so they have kind of that weird dynamic going on. Where this, it's it's not an anti relationship because they are together or whatever, but they are friends more than anything. So, right. and not to mention, in case there are some people who are listening that hate Juno, because <laughs> there are a lot of people out there. Um, this isn't like Juno in the sense that these, this is actually how human beings talk. <laughs> Juno, which is a movie I like, mm-hmm. uh, but that is a film where if the script is ridiculous as far as like that's not how anybody talks in real life ever. Um, so don't get your uh, fears up about that. When it comes to recommending this for people, I feel like there are still going to be a, a, uh, a group of people out there who don't like this film. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And, um I can't blame them because, like I said earlier, it's not doing something revolutionary, but it's mixing enough good parts together that I, you know, I walked away completely satisfied. Like, it's it's nowhere near a classic or something I'm going to be dying to watch again when mm-hmm. it comes out. But it's definitely going to be like, you know, a year from now if I saw it on HBO or something like that, and I turned it on. I can't imagine that I would be able to turn it off because it is 
it is very engaging and rewarding at the end. And there are a lot of really good parts of this film, and they add up to a great film. Not a, I'm not going to say a great film because I don't think it is a great film, but a, a lot of great parts that add up together to make a really good film, whether it be the supporting characters or the interesting delving into the claymation and kind of bringing fiction into the real world, which... I always love that kind of thing, especially when it's done well, which it was early on in this film, and they kind of got away from it. And also, too, uh, this film had a really strong soundtrack as well. So, Yeah, I think uh, Brian Eno did the score, mm-hmm. and that was fantastic. It was one of the best scores in a film I've heard, uh, independent or not independent, uh, in a long time. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, a lot of things uh, for this film that are well put together. I don't know there's too much more we can talk about without giving away more than we should about this yeah. movie. No, the final verdict for me is uh, go see it for sure. I think you'll at least find something to like out of it. And I feel like this is actually going to be, whether people are going to think it's like a masterpiece, I, you know, obviously I doubt or whatever, but mm-hmm. I do think this will be a pretty buzzed about movie when it finally does get released. And, um, or at least if not that, I do already think that it'll be a cult movie in the making for the high schoolers that, you know, are looking for their entertainment to be a little more adult, but yet also not like, I don't know, you know, it's like watching those indie foreign films of the Criterion Collection without actually having to watch it. Like, <laughs> you get that pseudo connection of like, oh yeah, it's it's great because it's talking about things I don't know about and that kind of stuff. Do you want to give a rating here or do you want to wait for the... Uh... No, I'll, I'll do it here. It's, okay. Uh, it's, I would give it three and a half out of five stars. It's a film I really, really enjoyed, uh, but it just, it did kind of... It was a little too familiar for me to truly love it. Yeah, I actually gave it the exact same rating of three and a half out of five. I uh, I really did enjoy a lot of this movie, especially the early first act of it. Uh, even though I didn't necessarily love the rest of the film, I still enjoyed where it went and the final kind of scene. And if you when you see the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Is uh, very in depth and very much something that. I wouldn't say I wouldn't expect out of a movie like this, but I feel like it it says a lot without saying much during it, which is... It is a great, uh, completely uh, wordless scene mm-hmm. that a lot of movies would not really try to attempt. And it's not something, you know, out of left field or something like, whoa, that's insane that they did that or anything like that. But just, just when you think that the movie has more to say, it doesn't, but yet it still continues because it's going to at least leave you with a really interesting note i would say yeah there are a lot of things about this movie that i genuinely did enjoy but it wasn't a perfect film to me at all and i would not say that i would think it was a masterpiece or anything like that i i enjoyed it and i i do think people should go see it and when it comes out in june or wherever it comes out to i don't know if we'll ever get a full full full-on wide release depends how they're marketing fox picked it up so Mm -hmm. if it doesn't i would be shocked okay i mean this is like you know Juno with Fox, a uh, little bit of Sunshine with Fox. Like, oh, okay. Uh, Fox Searchlight Pictures usually pick out the one that they're going to, you know, get off the ground and run with. So I, I'm so, pretty so sure. Do you think it'll be a full-on, like, it will come out wide its first day, or will it be where it starts out at a smaller theater, oh, yeah. and then it will trickle down yeah. eventually? It'll, it'll, it'll definitely be a limited release first, but mm-hmm. I can't imagine after a month or so, it won't be pretty much almost every major chain. All right. That, that, would, that would shock me. All right, very good. Well, uh, 
Nick and I both recommend this film. So when it comes out to a theater near you, you should go check it out. It's uh, definitely going to have some sort of buzz when it comes out, especially since it won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. And there are good reasons to go see this movie. And if you want to hear more about it, we'll have our second episode that will be up at the same time this one will. Uh, If not, uh, you could always come back and listen to it later after you see the movie and hear more about what we're going to talk about it. Uh, if you don't listen to our second part of the episode, thank you very much for listening to uh, this part. And uh, you can always find us on FilmTankShow.com or uh, iTunes or Stitcher, and also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. So from Nick Cheney and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch up with you again. Take it easy. 